Okay. Um, if you guys have not had a chance to grab them already, we have some note sheets uh, over here. Um, they will have kind of like an outline or a skeleton of what we will be talking about. And those you can use personally if you want to take notes or honestly just if you want to see roughly where we're going and some of the material we'll be covering tonight. Um, these are the, the kind of component parts. We'll be talking through the doctrine of God. And so uh, one of the reasons we provide this is so as we stop at each section, we'll kind of give pause if you guys have questions on anything. Um, and then, but if your question more appropriately fits in something later, you'll know, okay, when we get there, ask it then. Don't ask all the questions right after the first session. And then if for whatever reason your question doesn't fit neatly into any of these categories, um, then at the end, once we're done talking about Providence, we'll kind of have a big kind of lump ball Q&A time. Uh, so whatever doesn't fit neatly anywhere can go, can go there. So um, the other thing, uh, just a like, recap of format, we'll be doing uh, six roughly 20 minute long sessions of teaching with little breaks in between like five or 10 minutes uh, to get up, stretch our legs, grab some food. Um, and uh, the goal is for us to cover not in any way exhaustively, uh, but in some sense, uh, superficially, the doctrine of the Trinity uh, and the doctrine of God tonight. Um, you'll know if you've ever studied this before, it, it's not possible for us to fit in six 20-minute sessions all that uh, these doctrines talk about. And so probably more than any other discipleship night, I feel like we've shortchanged ourselves tonight. But we will nevertheless be striving forward. So, um, I'm going to start in uh, session one, talking about aseity, the aseity of God. And I would like uh, to start with the text of scripture, uh, where we have uh, in Luke 24, you don't necessarily need to turn there, but we have uh, Jesus on the road to Emmaus, a famous text in Luke's gospel, where Jesus is walking with uh, some disciples of his uh, post-resurrection, and they don't know who he is or uh, really what's going on at this juncture. And uh, Jesus, uh, speaking to them, says, uh, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer all these things and enter into glory? And beginning with Moses and all of the prophets, he interpreted to them in all of the scripture the things concerning himself. Now, what this text uh, tells us, it tells us a number of things, but one of the things it tells us is kind of where I want to start our doctrine of God tonight, which is that we are dependent upon God to reveal himself to us in order for us to understand things about him. Just as these disciples were dependent on Jesus to reveal himself to them in order for them to understand who he is and what he is like and what he came to do, so we too are dependent on God for understanding. This, uh, one of the things that we see in scripture is God's active self-revelation of who he is and what he is like and, and what he came to do. Were it not for God self-revealing to us, uh, we would have no way to access God. Were it not for God to condescend and meet us where we're at, condescend to human language, condescend to human weakness, uh, we would have no way of knowing things about the divine that we do know through special revelation. Uh, there's other subjects in the world that we can know things about. We can know, for example, about science or math or um, breeding animals. We can know all of those things by empirical observation, study of the world around us, and simply applying scientific uh, understanding over the course of generations. We can learn lots about the world, but we, we can't learn about the infinite God 
in that kind of way. God needs to reveal himself to us. And that's because uh, we are fallen creatures who were at once in good relationship with God, knowing him well. Uh, But since the fall, we have uh, a, a divide between us and God, a separation between the holy and the profane. And therefore, we struggle and we are actually inadequate to understand and know things about God apart from him graciously meeting us in our fallen condition. Uh, A text that speaks about this is Isaiah 40, and it says this, Who has measured the spirit of the Lord, or what man shows to him his counsel? Whom did he consult, and whom made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice, and taught to him knowledge, and showed him the way of understanding? God is different from us. He is his own thing. He is the creator, and all of us are not co-counselors with him, not equals in any way toward him, not beings like him, but lesser than him. Uh, We are different from him. We are creatures within his creation. So when we approach a doctrine like the doctrine of God, or as I want to get to eventually in this time, the doctrine of aseity, uh, we have to recognize you can't observe the world around you or think about what God might be like and get to the doctrine of aseity. God has to tell you that this is what he is like, or else you would never be able to understand it. So this is not something you could go and empirically study and and verify. It's something that God has to disclose about himself. The Trinity also is is like that. God has to self-disclose who he is in a Trinitarian way, or else we would never know that God is Trinitarian. There's no way for us to empirically get uh, to that point. Now, this is not just me musing about, uh, well, it's impossible for us to know God, therefore God needs to reveal himself to us. Um, Many authors have, have written and discussed these things Uh, One author, who I find particularly helpful at this point, um, talks about how we are to know God in his word. How do we know about God? And his name is Grams Goldsworthy. And he says, uh, when, when we look at our knowledge of God, how do we know about him? We have to recognize that we can only know God, first and foremost, through his incarnate word, Jesus. We can only know the divine through Jesus's incarnation, Jesus interpreting all of the past revelation through himself and making sense of it all and kind of bringing that story to culmination. And, and that, uh, that Jesus reveals who God is to us and reveals uh, what God has said definitively by confirming the Old Testament and bringing that along into Revelation. Jesus mediates God to us in a way that without Jesus' mediation, we would not know God. Uh, this, is, this is called the doctrine of what we would call special revelation. God needs to specially reveal himself to us, uh, either through his Holy Spirit, uh, through his Holy Word, which the Spirit mediates to individuals, uh, or through his Son, who mediates the Word to us, the, the Word of the prophets, and brings it more concretely into focus in his work and ministry on earth. However, uh, when, we're, when we're dealing also with the doctrine of revelation, we have to recognize that the Bible, which is how God specially reveals himself to us, uh, those of us who live post-cross, post uh, uh, the apostolic era of the New Testament, uh, we, are, we know God through his word and through his spirit mediating his word to us. But we have to recognize we don't worship scripture as God. Scripture has divine qualities to it. It has divine attributes, we would say. But it itself is not God. Right? Scripture is standing on the authority of God. Scripture is revealing God to us. But Scripture is not God. God, uh, and, and it can't be worshipped in, in that same kind of way. Uh, 
the divine qualities that scripture has are not inherent to scripture itself, but rather they're derived from the fact that it's inspired by the Holy Spirit of God and it records the Holy Word of God, Jesus himself. So scripture has derived attributes that we would say are divine. Scripture pierces our hearts. It knows us deeply. It speaks to us in ways that we uh, would find hard from any other author who wrote thousands of years beforehand. So it has these attributes that are hard to pin down from any other human book, but it doesn't mean it's divine. It just has divine attributes derived from the fact that it's the work of the Holy Spirit working through human authors and revealing the Son of God to us. Now, all of that uh, that I'm talking about now is just the doctrine of special revelation. Um, And the reason we need special revelation, I've mentioned, is because of our separation from God. We are creatures in his created world. Now, this is, uh, for example, we see this on the pages of Genesis. Genesis chapter 1, where God creates all things. He puts man in the garden. Genesis chapter 2, he gives to man a commission in the garden. And Genesis chapter 3, man is forced to decide if it believes the word of God and obeys the word of God simply because God said so, or whether man wants to strike out on their own and disobey the word of God, challenging what God said and seeing, maybe I can explore truth for myself and see if God really is trustworthy in all that he says. It's been often observed that God could have told Adam and Eve the reason for why they shouldn't eat of the tree, but he actually, he doesn't give reason. He just says, don't. And implicit in that is, is not just to, for them to obey and do what he says, but also for them to learn to trust him. And because they don't trust him, because they, they break their relationship in that way and they decide to strike out on their own, uh, much of our fractured relationship with the divine also results from that. Our lack of knowledge of him, our inability to know him perfectly. Um, so this is all kind of rooted in who we are. And that's why we have to start with revelation when we're talking about God, because were it not that God reveals himself to us, because of the fall, we would not know him well. So with that being established, uh, now we can think about, okay, what does, what does scripture say about God? And particularly as it refers to this doctrine of aseity, what does scripture say about God's uh, self-sufficiency? Aseity uh, is a fancy word that just means God is not dependent on any of his creatures for purpose, for meaning, for existence, for anything. God exists independent of his creation, autonomous from his creation, and he is the only being in all of the universe that is like this. Everything else is not ase. Everything else is not self-sufficient. Only God is ase. Only he has aseity. Um, He is the only thing that is self-sufficient, self-sustaining, self-determining in that way. And that, as a starting point with the doctrine of God, is really important for essentially every other aspect of the doctrine of God. We can't know God's providence apart from his aseity. We can't know our fallenness apart from God's aseity. And so we know about this attribute, not because we've looked at the trees around us and studied it and concluded God is self-sufficient, but because God tells us in his word that he is self-sufficient. So I want to survey a couple of texts of scripture that reveal this to us, a few from the Old Testament and a few from the New Testament that that mediate to us God's self-sufficiency. The first one I want to look at, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Exodus chapter 3. Some of these texts might be familiar texts to you. And Exodus chapter 3, no doubt, uh, is one such text. If you grew up in the church, uh, you'll remember this story. Perhaps you've seen uh, the old cartoon uh, of the Prince of Egypt 
where it uh, narrates and animates these events. But uh, in Exodus 3, we meet Moses after his exile from Egypt, after he flees Egyptian uh, rulership. And uh, we meet him uh, as a shepherd, as a man who's kind of living a purposeless life. Uh, and, and God goes to Moses, and in Exodus uh, chapter 3, verse 14, he reveals himself to Moses saying these words. Or sorry, I'll, I'll start in verse 13. Then Moses says to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What should I say to them? And God said, Say to these people of Israel, The I Am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say to this people of Israel that the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. So when God tells Moses, he doesn't just relate to Moses covenantally saying, I am the God of your fathers, but he also gives a clue about what he is like to Moses. He basically says, I am. Uh, and there's much ink that has been spilt and I think good, good writing that has been done on this. God is telling Moses that he is, he is unlike other things. He, he is in himself. He is self-sufficient, self-sustaining, not dependent on anything else. He just is. Nothing else is I am. But God is, I am. And this relates to how Jesus speaks about himself most often in the Gospel of John, where he says, ego eimi, I am, and then he says, I am the good shepherd, or I am the gate, or I am the door. He, he relates to himself by quoting from this verse, this text, and relating that, applying to himself. So God tells Moses he is, I am, and in that, we too, as readers of Exodus, know, well, that's how God is. Were it not for God telling Moses this, we would not know this about God. But this is not just the only text that speaks to this reality. Uh, also, Psalm chapter 90, verse 2, speaks to this reality. So if you want to turn there with me as well. Psalm chapter 90 is written by Moses. It is the, the Psalm of Moses. And he speaks uh, about God's character, about his nature, about his being. Remember, this is the same Moses who we just met, uh, who God revealed to himself. And here's Moses reflecting on God. Again, I'll start in verse 1, but it's verse 2 that you want to pay attention to. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. What Moses is telling us here is that God is uh, not part of creation. He, he's not within creation. He's not limited to creation. He's before creation, beyond creation, behind creation, in front of creation, surrounding creation. Before all of the things that are, think about as old as you can imagine, right? Before the mountains were formed, or ever the earth and the world were present, from everlasting to everlasting, God is God. God is who he is from time eternal past, and he will be who he will be into time eternal future. He exists beyond creation self-sufficiently. So remember, Moses is told this by God in the burning bush, and here Moses, towards the end of his life, writes a psalm reflecting just on that truth as well. Uh, but this just isn't something that we would say is true of God in the Old Testament. But like all of the doctrines of Scripture, the New Testament affirms and underscores these realities as well. And to see that, uh, we're just going to look at two texts. And again, I'm doing a very brief survey of these doctrines. 
But uh, I want you to turn with me to Acts 17 in this case. And we'll be looking at verse 24 of Acts 17. Now this takes place, uh, the, the background or the framing of Acts 17, this speech, uh, is Paul engaging with a bunch of polytheists uh, who, who believe that there are many gods, many things that are divine, and they even worship these things as divine, and they, they don't want to leave anything out. And Paul speaks about the unknown God. This is kind of his entryway into engaging in the pagan worldview. Uh, He speaks about the unknown God. And in verse 24, he describes this unknown God, which he wants to proclaim to them. He says in verse 24 of Acts 17, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. What he's saying is, God's not dependent on you. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need you to fashion things for him. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all of mankind life and breath and everything. God is not served by mankind. God does not need mankind to worship him. God is not dependent on mankind for any of his glory or significance. God actually gives to mankind everything that they could need ever to serve him and worship him. So all we ever do when we glorify him is give to him back what he's given to us. This is a really important thing to understand, and the aseity of God is often threatened. When I say threatened, I don't mean it actually is threatened. What I mean is it could be lost to us in man-centric worship, where we sing songs like God needed us or was dependent upon us for his glory, right? God is not dependent on us in any way for his glory. He is self-sufficient. And there's one more text I'd like to turn to to look at this doctrine. Uh, This is Revelation chapter 4. Uh, verse 11. And of course, uh, like many of these texts that we've looked at, these are texts that will probably stand out in your mind as texts you've come across personally in your Bible reading or texts you've heard preached before. I just want to draw some connections that uh, speak about the character of God here. Revelation chapter 4, verse 11, again, a familiar text to many of us. Here are the living creatures worshiping God, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. Now, what are the reasons they worship God? For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. So creation, everything in creation, is willed into existence by God, meaning God is apart from creation. He is creator. Everything in creation is creature. Uh, Things which are beyond us, like let's say angels. We think of angels as fascinating, strong, powerful beings. Ezekiel sees angels and he's fascinated by them. He's blown away by them. When people meet angels in scripture, they're floored. Angels are creatures and not even worth comparing to the incomparable God. Humans uh, can do wonderfully moral things. And yet, they can never assault God's holiness or perfection or challenge his goodness uh, because we are creatures within his creation. We are not creator. We can't even approach God who is in unapproachable light. So this is uh, a core doctrine in Christianity. It's a core doctrine about who God is. And it's a doctrine that speaks to, well, a whole host of other things that we know about God. But one of the things that we should rest in in terms of practical comfort with the doctrine of aseity is that God's self-sufficiency, his self-existence, gives us confidence for a number of reasons 
but one of which is that there's no way that God's glory could ever be diminished on this earth. Now, as Christians who live in a world that we feel like is lost and broken and dying, uh, we often think things like God is being robbed of glory. And we speak in analogical language like that. We say, well, God's glory is diminished when these things happen or uh, the world ought to worship God rightly. And it's true in a sense that we desire all people to worship God and to know him and to love him, and that is fitting. But also we can rest in the fact that God's character, his nature, his glory is not threatened when humans fail to worship him. Who he is is not threatened by his creatures rebelling against him because he is self-sufficient. He's not dependent on his creatures for glory. That's, a, I think, a source of comfort for us who live in a world that, I mean, we live in the West, who is in an active rebellion against God. And no one can rob God of his glory, his perfection, his goodness. I hear of atheist speakers all the time who sp- say things like, God is evil and wicked, and even if there was a God, I wouldn't worship him. I wouldn't want to be in heaven with him. And that just speaks to the fact that our world is lost, and God is not threatened when people speak against him in that way. Psalm 2 says that when the, the kings of the earth rebel against the sun, he sits in the heavens and laughs because he's not threatened by their rebellion. And that should be a comfort to us Christians who live on the world where we are experiencing all the brokenness of the world, and yet God is never threatened in, in that rebellion. What Asiety does is it highlights for us that God is the ultimate foundation and source of existence. He is the one from who we get truth, where truth is derived from. He is the one who is self-sustaining, meaning we can go to him and he doesn't change for any reason. Everything else in our life is not self-sustaining, meaning everything else in our life is less trustworthy, less reliable than God is. That is why there's false worship of many things in the world, which are not just false worship, it's actually less worship. It's, it's, it's counterfeit to the one true God who is worthy of worship because everything else can change. This is what the prophets uh, often make fun of the Israelites for when they worship idols formed by human hands. The prophets say, why would you worship that thing? You created that thing. That thing can change. That thing can break down over time. That thing's not worthy of worship. But God is worthy of worship because he is ase. He is self-sufficient. To understand and affirm this doctrine provides for us a robust understanding of who God is as separate from his creation. And it also provides for us a foundation of how we can hear God's truth and how God's truth can challenge us, uh, particularly at points where we want to disagree with God. Because God speaks apart from creation, meaning he speaks not dependent or contingent upon creation, we can draw with confidence that, that God is not limited by human culture, human shortcoming, human wickedness, or human sin. This is most important for us to understand, especially when we think about the Old Testament, and the morality which is advocated for in the Old Testament. And often today, the Western church will reflect on the Old Testament and say things like, well, that's amoral, or God surely isn't like that, or that seems wicked of God. Well, if God is ase, he can speak beyond culture, beyond time, and not contingent in any way upon human culture. And he can get his truth across to us. We can have confidence in that. If God is not self-sufficient in that way, we can't have confidence to the same degree that he speaks truly to us in his word. So aseity, in some sense, is a foundation for our doctrine of inerrancy. And also inerrancy is the only means by which we know the aseity of God. Because if he did not speak to us, we would never know him in that same way. So uh, with that, uh, I will cease and uh, give us some time for questions. And if you uh, don't have questions, we can...
uh, go get some food and stretch our legs and then move on to the Trinity.